Howdy folks, Ryan here. We've got an episode for you about the film Oppenheimer, which did quite well in the Golden Globes and seems to be uh, poised to do quite well at the Oscars coming up now. So um, should be still relevant uh, because we should note that this episode was recorded several months ago um, and we just have only gotten around to posting it now. And on a more personal note, um, you know, we've been a little bit radio silence here for the last couple of weeks. And the reason for that is I recently had a kid about a week ago. And so, you know, I've been totally swamped with handling all of that stuff. Any parents can tell you a newborn baby takes a lot of work. So, you know, things may be a little bit disrupted here for, for a bit, but we hope you'll bear with us and cut us a little bit of slack. But at any rate, stay tuned. We'll be back soon um, with new episodes as the year gears up for a presidential election. I think it's going to be quite important to have, uh, you know, our kind of sensible perspective on the stakes and what's going to happen and how, you know, we in the left can push for the best possible outcome. But at any rate, I could stop procrastinating, and here's our episode about Oppenheimer right now. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So today we are talking about the film Oppenheimer. We're uh, only, what, four months late to the <laughs> discussion? But as promised, the, the second half of Bar- Barbieheimer, if you recall. You know, we, we did the Barbie, which is the important... Uh, preface to Oppenheimer. You have to watch Barbie first. Is it Barbieheimer or is it is it Barbenheimer? Yeah. Oh, Barbenheimer? Maybe <laughs> it's Barbenheimer. Either way. John Jacob Barbenheimer Schmidt. <laughs> yes, but is this is an evergreen film, I think. Yeah. So oh, I think it's definitely still, you know, maybe maybe worth talking about now that the the dust has settled a little bit on the, uh, the, the, the discussion. Um, Plus, you know, what just came out is the, the next biopic that I don't know what's, what's in the, uh, the air, but Napoleon has been made into a three hour film, um, by Ridley Scott. And that just came out apparently. So, uh, the, the historical nerdy films or, or, uh, pop cultural films are all the rage these days. And at least, um, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, I would have never guessed that either of these concepts would have done well uh, in in the theater in terms of like revenue, nor necessarily as pieces of cinema or things worth talking about uh, necessarily on the podcast. But I don't know about you. I think both of them are. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can return to uh, Napoleon. I hear that one's kind of a turd. Uh, <laughs> Rid- Ridley Scott strikes me as kind of a kind of a dumb guy. At the end of the day, he's a little less thoughtful than Christopher Nolan. I think. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think you know that's where I think I would sort of start the discussion off. Uh, would just be to say like it's a solid film, you know, and and I um, it's pretty remarkable how well it did. I, it didn't do as well. As Barbie, I don't think, um, but it's still made. I, did it crack a billion? I mean, it was into the high hundreds of millions at least. Um, and, you know, three hour drama that's mostly like guys and people in rooms talking to each other. That's like really holds your attention. 
Yeah, I, the last uh, act of which is about a, like a committee hearing. <laughs> yeah, a committee hearing in a small room. And people that know movies say that that like editing a movie like that, like 12 Angry Men, is really hard. You know, s- filming it and setting it up so that like the pacing is maintained and so on. And, and where all you have is people sitting down next to each other and talking, that is very challenging. You know, you don't have any, a lot of tips like shooting a car chase might be technically challenging in terms of the stunt coordination and stuff like that. But that's much easier in terms of like the grammar of film and whatnot. Um, yep. To make Absolutely. it exciting. But plus, Christopher Nolan is known for his visuals. And I thought going into this, well, apart from the obvious visual of, you know, the bomb, uh, w- what are you going to do for three hours that's visually interesting? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of eggheads like in, in their you know, labs or classrooms or whatever. And he does it. He does it. I mean, it's it's to me a remarkable feat of cinematography, writing and editing to make a three-hour film on this topic, uh, propulsive and a, a political thriller, really. A political yeah. thriller, a, a drama, a uh, character study. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think just in terms of a filmmaking, um, it, not an ounce of fat, I didn't think. Um, even maybe you could say in that, that third act um, with the committee hearing, maybe you could find somewhere to, to cut. But I thought it was uh, pretty propulsive and captivating the whole time. Yeah. Earned its length, I would say. Yeah. And I, I saw it, uh, <laughs> brief aside, you know, I saw it in Finland at like a knockoff IMAX. It's it's like IMAX, but not really IMAX, you know, a really stadium <laughs> seating type thing with a really big screen. Absolutely full house. I don't think it was a single empty seat. And um, the the funny thing about Finland is, you know, so they have like the pre-show stuff, uh, you know, and rather than commercials, there was like, uh, uh, well, I think there were a few commercials in there, but the, there was like a five minute interlude where there was a little like quiz show thing, an animated program where it was telling you about how to ride your bike safely in the street. <laughs> I knew there was going to be a PSA. That's like <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, you might be worried about nuclear holocaust, but make sure that you arrive to the theater safely by riding your bike. Properly. Yeah. Yeah. Here's where you have right away. Here's where you need to watch out. Wear a helmet. The danger's I mean, big and mundane. It was all in Finnish. So I was sort of guessing at what the, uh, you know, content of it was, but it seemed pretty clear. Bike safety PSA. And yeah, you know, the, the, I think the, the average cinema goer is not as dumb as Hollywood executives think that they are. You know, they just think, Oh, we'll just keep shoving the same superhero slop down their throats year after year. And like, that's fun in, in itself. But you know, there's, there's an un, unaddressed market here for like intelligent films that are well made. And you know, you put a good marketing budget behind them and hey, look, yeah, people like watching it because it's good. And- and people like to learn also, you know, especially in areas that aren't, you know, someone's area of expertise. Um, you have physics, you have uh, politics, history, you have, um, you know, all kinds of interesting things that you can learn about not just our past, but um, about politics that relates to today. And we'll get into that a bit, I'm sure, with the, the anti-communist, McCarthyite stuff and, and other things. But, um, you know, it's not easy to make a film um, that is 
relevant, but also illuminating about um, the history uh, of important parts of our past, as well as, um, you know, moral and philosophical and existential themes that that are explored through a personal journey. And it's not easy to pull off and, and not get either sentimental or boring or, um, you know, reductionist. So, um, yeah. So, so from, from us, and this is another thing where people were kind of, uh, ripping into it from the left and the right, um, in the reviews for various reasons. And I'm getting more and more skeptical about those kind of negative reviews <laughs> when something yeah. makes a lot of money and, and a lot of people think it's really good. Uh, more often than not, I'm, I'm going to assume that somebody just enjoys being a kind of, um, you know, nonconformist or a, you know, kind of curmudgeon who hates what people like that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's maybe a good place to actually dig in a little bit. Um, you know, so like we've sort of talked around a little bit, but, you know, brief plot summary, um, you know, tune out if you want to go in blind. But, you know, so this is a story of J. Robert Oppenheimer and basically how he came to assemble a team of physicists at Los Alamos in New Mexico for the Manhattan Project to build the first nuclear bomb to develop the science and the technology and the engineering, et cetera, to set it all up. And then later the story of how his security clearance was uh, revoked and um, by, by a, a, a fellow named Louis Strauss, right? They say that he insists that it's not Strauss as, as you would say in German, right? It's, he's saying he's calling it Strauss, which maybe we could talk about that, what that reveals a little bit. Um, and then uh, Strauss's attempt to be confirmed uh as a uh, secretary of commerce under Eisenhower and how his basically orchestrating the, the, uh, and, you know, the downfall of Oppenheimer's career affected that proceeding. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about how the movie portrays Oppenheimer because there, there's some takes that you see that, that, you know, say it is sort of like straightforwardly heroic or, or, or like a sort of tragic look at like a very sympathetic portrayal of him. And I don't agree with that at all. Like, uh, it, it, I, it's definitely a tragic story. Um, mm. Yeah. But but I would say like in the sort of more classical Greek sense in which like the protagonist is brought low by his tragic flaw and it's a real flaw. You know, it's it's not it's it's not some sort of, you know, slight bl character blemish on an otherwise perfectly heroic person like the movie portrays him as kind of a bastard, you know, mm. Um and, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, there's notes of even, so the most. Let's get into that. So tell yeah. me what, what you think the film is, is showing about his character in terms of like, I guess we could get to how his, his vices relate to the tragedy or the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the role he plays in history that has the consequences it has. But, um, what's your take on, on kind of, what kind of person they portray him as his virtues and vices. Yeah. So he is definitely maybe ambition you would say is his tragic flaw. Um, you know, because he, he's basically picked up to like run this, run the, the Manhattan project 
because the this one general, I forget his name, basically recognizes that this is the guy. He has the combination of like administrative talent and uh, scientific brilliance that he can like run herd on all these wild haired, you know, uh, lefty crazies who, you know, constitute the major scientific talent of, of the country and lots of Europe too. Um, it's almost like he has the, the arrogance to, to, arrogance. to make, yeah, yeah to, to like make gutsy calls and, and do what has to be done or something. You kind of you think, right? Like, yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of arrogance and, and a hubris, frankly, which is, of course, the, the classic tragic flaw, um, to, to think that you should be in charge of a project like this, right? Yeah, that maybe that's a better that's a better characterization of a hubris and, and arrogance because he, he's shown to be a, a cocky bastard and he, he makes like an enemy of this this uh, Straws guy by um, he he's offered, you know, Straws is a sort of like supplicant. He thinks Oppenheimer is this like super brilliant guy. He wants to have him at his uh like university, right? His, his institute. At at the, yeah. Right. And, and Oppenheimer's like, I'll consider it, you know, <laughs> this is like <laughs> yeah, yeah, incredibly yeah. Like, prestigious appointment. And he's like, just sort of like, uh, well, yeah, I'll think about it. You know, real yeah, asshole. And, th- and that's an interesting foil too, because let's talk about, uh, this is Robert Downey Jr.'s character. He's, he's, he, he's the chair of the atomic, what would be the atomic energy, uh, committee, uh, even though he's not, he doesn't have a, he might have a science background a little bit, but he's not a physicist. He's, he's what he calls a self-made man. And I think actually he is supposed to be maybe the, um, the picture of the ultimately self-interested, ambitious man, right? Like, like a self-made, uh, whether in politics or in business, the kind of, uh, you know, um, the person who's really all about their own uh, power and ascendance and who has a chip on his shoulder a little bit because he doesn't, ha- I mean, he might have that kind of ambition uh, and maybe some street smarts, right. But he doesn't have like the genius of Oppenheimer. Right. Um, and, and I, th- and I think that the hubris and arrogance of Oppenheimer is in contrast because I don't know that Oppenheimer is actually ambitious or at least I don't think he's necessarily portrayed as ambitious in the same way. No. I think he he thinks he's the smartest when it comes to this stuff. And he thinks that that's why he should be in charge. It's like it's almost like he wants to be in charge in like a philosopher king type of uh, way, right? Like he thinks he deserves it because he knows what's what. Uh, whereas, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, he just wants power, right? And I think that's an important distinction, um, even though they, they both reveal important vices and problems. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Ambition. Yeah. Pure ambition is not, is not the right way to put it. Um, because yeah, if, if you're just ambitious, like Strauss is just ambitious, you know, he just, he's out to win by, by any way he can. And, uh, he has no integrity and he has no, um, he doesn't care what he has to do to get where he has to get. And therefore, he probably has no conscience, whereas like a whole lot of this film is about the, the guilty conscience of Oppenheimer, right? Yeah, pretty much the whole second half of it, because it's like his his downfall, as it were, is that he succeeds. He creates this this nuclear bomb and then he's like, fuck, what have I done? Um, and, you know, spends I think it strongly implied that he basically falls on his sword. He, he like loses this committee hearing on purpose. 
because, or he doesn't fight as, as hard as he could have because he thinks that he deserves to be punished. Um, and, and the movie also suggests that that is kind of pathetic a little bit, you know, that like he's being very, uh, uh, self-centered in terms of it really wasn't entirely about you at one point. Um, you know, he, he, he has his, his communist mistress who he then, you know, says like, I can't see you anymore. This isn't going to work out. And she kills herself. And then he goes and he like hides in the wilderness and his wife comes and is like, you don't get to be sad and run away from everything just because you did a bad thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. No, I think <clears throat> this is a super important theme. That's really interesting to me because there is a, a tendency that maybe we all have, I don't know. Um, to feel like uh, kind of self-castigation and guilt is is somehow the proper moral response when it's actually just like a psychological self-soothing, yeah, um, right. And and it actually is a fairly you know solipsistic narcissistic thing to to do to make it about you, especially when you're talking about killing hundreds of thousands of people and unleashing this kind of power um, for violence on on the world. But I also think that part of the movie is trying to show that he's wrong in blaming himself. Like, I think there's a link between his co- the culpability he thinks he has for uh, her suicide. So the character played by Florence P. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, so she, she's a communist. He has an, a love affair with early on, I think, even before he gets married. And, and it continues. Uh, it doesn't continue, actually, but he kind of. Uh, has one a one-off uh, reunion with her while he's married to Emily Blunt's character, Catherine Oppenheimer, right? So Jean Tatlock is Florence Poe's character. She's the commie. She's a psychiatrist or psychologist, something like that, right? And the truth is she's a, she's obviously a, a depressive. Like, I don't know what, what specific diagnosis would be right for her, but she, she has, she has issues that have nothing to do right with, uh, Oppenheimer. And in fact, when he like goes full out for her before he even gets married, she basically says, no, you know, I, like, I can't do that. I'm not going to give it, you know, I'm not going to give you that. I can't whatever. And she thinks that she'll be happier, um, that way. But then it turns out after he gets married, she like appeals to him and, and says, well, I was wrong. Actually, I can only be happy with you and all that. And, uh, and he decides in that moment, like after that, like one, affair with her he decides like nope actually i can't do this you know so he he makes a decision that that's that's not the right thing to do and then he feels responsible when she kills herself after that right i think there's a parallel between that and his his feeling of moral culpability for what happens with nuclear power and nuclear war and hiroshima and nagasaki and all that right like because the yeah. truth is the complexity of the moral disaster that happens is far beyond one man's decision making or one man's contribution or, or, or whatever, right? It's in fact, it's a, it's a very complex situation because initially, when he is all about um, this project, it's because he's he's Jewish and he's seeing Jews being massacred by the Nazis, and the Nazis are going to get the bomb first if the Americans don't, and then, you know, he as he says at one point. I'm like, I don't know that we'll do the right thing with this, but I know that the Nazis won't, right? Like, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of hard to argue with. The the problem, of course, is that we beat the Nazis before they developed the the bomb anyway, right? That's the big problem morally, uh, eventually. Yeah. At the time of, at the time of his decision, it was, I think, a real quandary. Like, if if we don't develop this, it's going to be developed by the bad guys, right? 
No, I think at the time I almost certainly would have would have have agreed with him on that point wholeheartedly. You know, this is just, I mean, just you know, the the Hitler Nazi regime is like the. Can there be any question whatsoever? Had they had it, would they they would have used it on, you know, anybody on on London or or on on Washington or New York if they could have gotten that far um, or Moscow, you know, and yeah, it's a um, you know on the on the you know, the moral culpability thing, there, there's an important scene, I think, with Truman that, that is a little, it's, it's a little historically inaccurate, but, but he, you know, he goes to meet Truman and he talks about, it's like, I, I have, he says, I think I have blood on my hands and Truman just like is disgusted. He's like, you, you he calls him a, a pussy or something. Cry baby. A cry baby. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, implication being that's like you know you built this you didn't order it to be used and it's like you know get over yourself type of thing but i you know i I think that the the movie sort of ultimately lands on the idea because after the the whole dispute with with strauss um is over whether uh they should develop the hydrogen bomb and oppenheimer is against it for i think the uh the movie implies and and I think historically were kind of bullshit reasons. He's like, oh, it, it, it's not important to do you know fission or whatever it is. I f- I forget exactly what he says, but I think his actual motivation is he doesn't want the technology to be advanced. He was anymore. saying it's it's not practical or something. Uh, yeah. on one level, but really it was kind of clear it was for moral reasons. He just he just knew that the moral objection wasn't going to be heard politically at all. Basically, right? yeah. And so, you know, even if you are a little narcissistic in terms of like, you know, taking on too much blame for this yourself and making it all about you, it's still better to be guilty and to try to like stop nuclear proliferation than it is to just be like Strauss and like full on ahead, like, let's just, you know, play the power politics of the military industrial complex yeah, well, and and here's where the the kind of the cynical anti-communism can come in. And there's obviously there was like le- legitimate true believers um, in the Cold War, a necessity to like you know, look out for sympathizers with uh, with the the regime, you know. Um, but the truth is, his approach, which was uh, arms control and adhering to what even uh, you know, I don't know if the film shows this, but even Truman kind of agreed to, uh, uh, you know, a development of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons that's kind of uh, controlled internationally and that that has kind of a transparent, um, you know, open flow of information. And, and this is, again, the, the UN has kind of uh, only recently been established and he he doesn't want to get into an arms race uh, because I think he says at one point, like when we were developing the nuclear bomb, it didn't occur to him that what he later saw to be true was the case, which is that any weapon we develop, we will use. <laughs> like if yeah. it gets developed, it's going to be used. Um, and, and the, the realization of that, because they do some great showing, not telling uh, where they finally completed the uh, the bomb and, and successfully done the test, 
And Oppenheimer thinks like, okay, I still get to be involved now, right? And what happens next? And basically the military is like, yep, we're taking it from here. See you later, buddy. <laughs> like, like, thanks for for doing the 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 legwork, but now we're totally in charge of the use of this power, right? And uh, and that's when I think he starts to be like, uh oh, this this could be bad, right? Um, even though he's involved in discussions a- around uh, the strategic use of the bomb in Japan, um, that's when he starts to get really aware that like this could be abused in in a way that's that's really really bad. Uh, and the politics there are kind of interesting um, around picking a target and and the idea that it has to be used not just once but twice. <laughs> So yeah, I think I think the, the the later McCarthyite stuff, where his kind of um, running the same circles and, and and having an affair with a communist, even his wife, um, she used to be part of the Communist Party, but she on the stand in the in the hearing, she makes a great point that like, well, yeah, that was the American Communist Party, and there was like a divergence. Uh, pretty clearly of people who didn't like what was going on in the USSR, especially like when Stalin took over, right? Like, you know, uh, there are people that no longer thought that that you could be a, a communist in this country uh, without having sympathies for the USSR. And anyway, it, it delves into things kind of interestingly, but basically his associations are used as a cudgel to really prevent his politics of international treaties and uh, arms control and the things that that he wants to like prevent mass destruction again. And I think that's something today that you see all the time that the the reactionary right uses kind of jingoistic uh, anti-communist rhetoric in order to prevent people from advancing politics that are liberatory and peace advocating, you know, and, and that this is something that has just... Um, been repeated since then, right? Over, yeah, over. yeah. I think that's 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 sort of the takeaway, you know, from the whole McCarthy period, because like the Soviets did have, uh, I believe, in reality, they had spies or they had people who gave them like technical information from the Manhattan Project. That's how they were able to develop the the bomb so quickly themselves. Um, there were tons of Soviet spies, uh, throughout the whole American, uh, government in the forties. The guy, uh, God, what is his name? Harry Dexter White, who designed the Bretton Woods, like whole global monetary system with John Maynard Keynes and all the other people at, at yeah. Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. He was, if not a Soviet spy, someone who had like past information, uh, to, to Soviet agents on many occasions. No sign whatsoever that the that that the uh, Bretton Woods system was designed to benefit the the Soviets. Of course, on the contrary, it, it was uh, overwhelmingly uh, biased towards you know American needs. But still, that was like a real thing, and you know, the, McCarthy didn't know shit about any of that. You know, he wasn't interested in actually like controlling or you know, rooting out actual Soviet espionage and and doing counter espionage effectively. It was about whipping up a moral hysteria to to basically persecute leftists and, and liberals to a great extent, to to tar them as pinkos. Um yeah, and that was, right. you know, that I believe, you know, one of uh during that trial they they, they it's like they they talk about during the the bomb project, like the Soviet Union was allied with the United States. Like it was even, you know, uh, it, it's not 
treason necessarily like to to say like okay i'm giving sensitive nuclear information to like britain or or france you know we're and he and he's very nuanced oppenheimer oppenheimer is very nuanced he's like uh first of all it strikes me as strange for it to be objectionable to share such things with our allies. But I, re- I realize it would be treason because that's not my decision. I'm not the elected representative to make that decision. But still, I would advise the president to share this information with our allies. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But nuance is all lost in, in, in those situations, right? That's that's not what matters. Because like you said, it's not about that, right? Uh, although in the, in the war war, not the Cold War, but World War II, the, the general played by Matt Damon. Um, and I, I do think there's something also really well done here in the characterization of different military figures, uh, as well as different physicists and different politicians, even like the staff aide who is kind of prepping Robert Downey Jr. for the committee hearing and uh, of his Senate confirmation hearing. Not all people of a type are, are cast in the same light. Like, the physicists are very different. Even the Jewish physicists are very different in, in many ways. The the um, the politicians are different. The military people are different. And there's a lot of nuance there, right? I, I find. So even if like the military industrial complex functions overall in a certain way, uh, the character, for example, played by Matt Damon, he kind of understands the need for these radical lefties. Um, to be in charge of the Manhattan Project because they're the ones that can get this done. And he kind of understands that, that the security fears are are somewhat legitimate, but also a little overblown. And like that there, there's a kind of uh, give and take. And he has some skill in navigating the clearance initially for Oppenheimer. Um, and, and then you have kind of <laughs> a, a lot of, uh, I think, views into the very real dangers that are that are at play here and then the people and i think this is maybe an overarching theme the people who are actually interested in navigating those complexities and whether they're a general or a physicist or whatever and the people who are just abusing the complexity in order to to uh, have their own agenda pursued right for power yeah the the other that other general Boris Pat Boris Pash. Yeah, so Casey Casey Affleck plays a different general named Boris Pash, who is a fanatical like right wing anti-communist. Um and is and, and foolishly divulges some some stuff about his associations to this guy. Um and and then is advised by Matt Damon's character uh that like, oh you idiot, <laughs> why did you say that? <laughs> You trusted you trusted this guy just because he's military. You trusted him. You 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 know you naive fool. You I I, I do really think that there's this kind of modernity has unleashed these very complicated problems, and there are people who abuse those problems for their own gain, or are just fascists, or are just you know whatever. And then there are people who are like doing their best, and no matter how much they try to do their best, there's a lot of problems with what comes just because of the nature of the situation, right? Uh, because even Matt Damon's character, who seems like a, as good a guy as you can have, I mean, this is a, a general who also was an MIT uh, engineer, I think, if I recall correctly. And um, because of the nature in the, in the third act, because of the nature of the, like, the act that was passed about atomic energy after the war, 
um, he's basically asked, would you give security clearance for Oppenheimer now, according to this act's requirements? And he, and he can't do it, even though he he wants to to stand up for Oppenheimer as much as he can. And that's just, the, you know, the complexity of the political situation. Right. Um, yeah. So the hysteria of the Red Scare and that, you know, it should it should be noted parenthetically that. Uh, almost the exact same thing happened after the end of the first world war. Um, when you had, you know, basically an absolute fucking flip out over, you know, supposed communist, um, infiltration of the government and so on and, and, and massive basically police state actions and the Palmer raids and whatnot to basically crush an incipient socialist movement, which, which hitherto had been like quite strong and, and many states like Oklahoma won like 25% of the vote. Um, but yeah, I think that whole, you know, uh, sequence there, you know, as like the bomb is finished and, and Oppenheimer is sort of unceremoniously shunted to this, you know, away from control of the, you know, technology and then eventually out of, you know, the whole national security establishment, uh, entirely it's a pretty good little you know encapsulation of how you know the 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 war effort like the the american left was sort of co-opted and then spit out and and trodden under the boot heel of the american state you know it was just sort of used for convenience and um that these guys that were I mean, this, this book is, is, or sorry, the movie is based off the book American Prometheus, right? And the guy who stole fire from the gods and his punishment was to be chained to a rock and have his liver eaten by an eagle every day until the end of time. Um, and that, you know, sort of follows that sequence pretty precisely. I think a, a good kind of allegory, though, for just the problems of modernity writ large and for, for the left, I think the fact that in, in a way the politics of this film are, are i think very good i mean oppenheimer is a fellow traveler with the commies but he also sees that there are problematic things he doesn't like dogma uh you have but he tries to unionize and he gets in trouble for that you have i think fundamentally an awareness of the potential first of all he's a guy at the very beginning that you're introduced to who has a, an awe of the universe and and has a love of um learning about what is and and there's like a wonder like science is just wondrous and and beautiful and fascinating and he's also reading like T.S. Eliot's Wasteland and listen to Stravinsky and like like modernity brings with it um and he's looking at a Picasso like there are these fascinating revolutions in art in science in literature and poetry and modernity brings with it so much that is um I think excellent and worthwhile and beautiful. Um, but with those things, including with the technological advances and the advances of science, come terrible problems and, and terrible abuses of, of these advances and these changes. Uh, and so I think he's a character who his journey kind of traces the, the journey of modernity through what what is like an amazing promise of advancement. And like we can feed all kinds of people in amazing ways. We have these energy advances. We have all these things that we could do to ourselves and for ourselves and with this knowledge. And yet there's so many terrible things now we can do to ourselves and to each other. 
and like it's Pandora's box, right? Like you can't unring that bell. So what do you do? And I think his inclination as a lefty is you need to cooperate. You have to have like all the physicists have to come together. All of the politicians have to come together. You have to break borders. You have to think about the fact that like, you know, there's all these dangers that we can only control if we think together about a common good that is like international, you know? Uh, you have to have a humanism that's really profound if you want to make the most of these advances and not destroy ourselves. And I think that is still the kind of truth that we have today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we should note that, you know, even though Oppenheimer lost his internecine political battles uh, towards the end of his life, like that, his approach was followed in the later Cold War. Uh, you know, the, like the basic fundamentals of it in with the, you know, test ban treaty and, you know, str uh, strategic, uh, you know, start whatever the arms yeah. limitation treaties, basically, basically, That's you right. know, it, yeah. you had the arms race going for a long time. And then the, the people are just like, we're, 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 well, all we are doing is building up the power to like make the rubble bounce three or four more additional times after everyone is already dead. You know, like what on earth are we doing here? And yeah, there, there were diplomatic agreements, um, to, you know, just cut down to where, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not a, not exactly the ideal outcome, but just to say like, okay, you know, one, one or two times, uh, to destroy the entire human race is probably enough, enough for, for everyone. And, um, oh, something, by the way, I wanted to mention on, on Truman, uh, you know, we, we mentioned before how, you know, tr Truman is ex expresses contempt as, you know, Im implying that like, it's his responsibility. And so, you know, these, these sissy scientists saying it's, it was my responsibility is wrong. The interesting thing, you know, that, that I think sort of partakes of the historical, um, you know, the conventional wisdom, I guess, that you see in the media that Truman did directly order the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Japan. That is not true. What the only order that Truman explicitly gave was to stop the dropping of nuclear weapons after the second one. Um, and it was explicitly because he was morally horrified at all of the civilian casualties. He said, I just can't, it's something like all those kids in the, in the order. That's right. Um, it was, it was, at, you know, as, as Oppenheimer, you know, says in the, in the movie, it's like one, once it's built, then it's in the control. If we build it, we're going to use it. And I think that, you know, you, you, you see, um, Arguments for why the nuclear bomb was dropped. That that for what's that guy's name? Gal Gar Arperowitz, whatever his name is. Um, that it was actually intended to to like intimidate the Soviet Union. That's right. That it had nothing to do with Japan. Really, is about the Soviets. I I'm unconvinced by that as as the primary motivation. Like that might have been in there, but I think it was basically just like we're building it. We're going to use it right away. Like like it was just berserker yeah, well, rage death. It wasn't even. even Go ahead. Even one of their one of their their stated reasons, because you have this like the physicists are like, well, wait a minute, we we beat the Germans. How long is Japan going to hold out? And um, and then there, there's this kind of absurd moment where like seemingly the guy running the meeting, he's like, I've got a list of of. Uh, whatever it was, like 13 potential cities. He's like, actually, let's make it 12. My wife and I went to Kyoto. It's a beautiful place. We're not going to go. We're not going to do it there. <laughs> like, but that. But I thought that was. 
I don't think it was meant to be comical, but it, but it's it's comical in a way that's revelatory. It's like, yeah, oh, Gallo's this here. asshole in power because of his vacation with his wife gets to save this city with all these people on a lark, but but for like a reason that's legitimate. Like it's a beautiful place with all these people. But by that logic, you shouldn't do that fucking thing to anyone. These are all places with people that have their own beauty and whatever, you know. Yeah. But they say, you know, the first bomb is uh to to show them that we have it, right? And then one might ask, well, why do you need the second? Oh, to show them that we'll keep using it until they surrender. Uh, okay, do you really need to use it more than once to show that you'll keep using it? Like, is it to show that you have more than one? Like, what, what is it? Like, what? What? I I don't know. It, it just um, it, it seems to have. Uh, there are plenty of easy rationalizations, but uh, yeah, I'm no I'm no expert in the debates uh, historically about was what was or wasn't necessary. But um, yeah, from from what I've read, it the the that the the nuclear weapon was not central to the dis- Japanese decision to surrender that it was as much about the Soviet declaration of war as anything else. Um, and it almost certainly could have been avoided entirely. Uh, yeah. but you know, it was, I think, you know, the whole war was, it was just a, a war of like virtual extermination until they would surrender. It was just like, whatever we've got, we're going to throw at them without thinking about it at all. And, you know, that's like the, the, the great movie, um, fog of war, but with, uh, Robert McNamara, he talks about strategic bombing of, of, uh, Japanese cities, you know, there are more, way more people killed by, uh, incendiary bombs being dropped, uh, across Japan than, than by the nuclear bombs. Um, and, yeah, hundred thousand people in Tokyo just burned the whole city to the ground, uh, intentionally. You know, to ki- just to kill as many civilians as possible. Great. Well, yeah, it's it's a reminder that all the the war crime international laws uh, came as a result of things that we also did. <laughs> that wasn't just about the you know the Axis powers and what they did. Uh, whether it's Dresden or, or Japan. I mean, just uh, like war crimes, crimes against humanity. And, and I mean, think of it this way. So what, uh, 200,000 people or so ultimately died from the two atomic bombs, right? Uh, well, okay. In about a month in Gaza, Israel has killed about 20,000 people, right? So that's just, that's like a tenth of the the two nuclear bombs, right? Just because, Right. Yeah. Um, and that and, you know, you, I think you could see why the why military people would be so callous about dropping a nuclear bomb. It's like, well, who cares if you're blown up by radiation or you're burned to death in a firestorm? You're still dead, you know, or like grossly mutilated if you're, you know, out the out the back of ways. And, you know, I think that uh, one of the reasons why the nuclear bomb was considered so horrible is that it kind of recontextualized the entire conflict up to that point. It was like. Oh God, what are we doing to them and to ourselves? You know, by, by, uh, countenancing this sort of like horrific, you know, I mean, deliberate mass murder of, of hundreds of thousands of civilians to, to, to win a war. And even, you know, and, and, and perhaps worst of all, I mean, I think this almost makes the U.S. sort of action even worse that like they didn't even think about that much, whether it would force the Japanese to surrender or not. It was just like, fuck them. You know, it was just, it was like blood rage after Pearl Harbor and they won't surrender and just like, just keep pounding them with anything and everything. Who cares about civilians, men, women, and children until they, yeah, 
And that, you know, there it was at no sense ever any sort of sort of cold-blooded rationality in terms of either in you know intimidating the Soviets or considering what the minimum possible you know uh, infliction of 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 loss of life that could achieve the objective it was just like we did it we'll do it because we could you know wars are like that i think a lot of times people they they just they lose their humanity and just become um you know just just bestial violent you know creatures bent on death that's right yeah i mean it's a way of being and a way of being that's about non-being, right? I mean, <clears throat> so much of modernity and that I think this film explores well is implicates what Hannah Arendt thought was the, the most important kind of call for us in, in the 20th century and after, which is to, to, as she put it, to think what we are doing. And, and by doing, she had a very, you know, well thought out understanding of the concept of action and, and what, what, what she meant by, by what we are doing included the fact that technology and advances in um, not just weapons, but other forms of technology were outstripping our understanding of the consequences of using those technologies or, or of like we, the, the tail was wagging the dog. And, and, and we are starting like with modernity, we are starting to do things in a way that has the product of what we're doing is dictating things to us rather than vice versa. Right. And, and, and that I think is more and more true with whether it's climate change or pandemics or, or what have you, like we need to stop and think <laughs> before we do uh, more than ever. Like this is the problem of, of the 20th century and, and beyond. Um, and nothing reveals that more than the idea with like a push of a button, you could just annihilate, obliterate. Right. Um, what you can with nuclear weapon. And, and that's, that's just one symptom of this capacity that we have made things that, that kind of can, and with AI maybe now too, can, can no longer, they will no longer listen. Like the Falcon cannot hear the Falconer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that, but I, I, th I think too, that this film is, is very interesting in that it also, delves into like interpersonal complexities and, and uh, this difficult marriage. I thought the portrayal, Emily Blunt was fantastic. Like the female actresses were, were um, phenomenal. Florence Puh, Emily Blunt, um, Catherine Oppenheimer is an interesting character. She, she's someone who's had a really rough life. Like this is her, what uh third or fourth marriage. But, but the reasons for that are, are so interesting insofar as like, whether it's war or uh, sexism, like the, the condition that she's in and, and being in this kind of somewhat unhappy marriage, <clears throat> which we can get into a little bit. And she's like a brilliant um, biologist, but she's basically uh, only permitted to be a housewife. You know, she is an alcoholic for reasons that I think, you know, a reactionary person might say, oh, she's just given into personal vices. But really reveal the kind of problems of the 20th century that have to do with with war and sexism and um the 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 ways that that brilliant women were limited and and oppressed and, and all these things and yet she manages in the end to really come through for her husband and and in a kind of remarkable scene uh where she testifies right but but I thought their marriage was portrayed in a very interesting way because to be honest Oppenheimer was more in love 
or perhaps properly in love with the, the communist uh, who had the mental illness and killed herself and so forth. And in a way, you know, maybe Catherine Oppenheimer settled for him too, because she'd gone through so many different marriages and, 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 uh, and yet she ended up being stuck with someone who was devoted to this project and to being this important person. Um, and so she had the kind of secondary role of supporting him and all that. And maybe she was a little depressed too from the problem that he was involved with, the problem of modernity. Uh, I don't know. What did you think about the characterization of, of her and their their relationship? Yeah, it's definitely implied that she drinks because, you know, she's a brilliant, ambitious scientist who's forced to take care of children without without any help you know from her husband it's like he comes back really late and the baby is crying and she's like sitting at the table drinking and he's like well shouldn't you go to him and she like sort of staggers off like i've been going to him all day and i'm not like dude pick up your kid well what does he do he pawns it off on somebody else <laughs> like takes it to i forget who That's but right. like one of his friends or relatives, yeah, like an English professor, or, or I think I think another Berkeley professor um, who uh, actually gets him in trouble later on um, for for trying to be a kind of commie go between. Um, we we don't have to get into that, but but he's someone who based Chevalier, right? He he actually is is one of the reasons that uh, that Oppenheimer gets in big trouble. But but he and his his wife take in the baby for a while, I guess, right? Uh, although that reminds me of an important scene where like when Oppenheimer is doing this, he's, he's embarrassed and he's full of shame and guilt. And he says, I'm sorry, you know, basically like, uh, I don't, I don't forget if he said we as a, he and his wife or I am like very selfish. And, um, the Chevalier professor has a great response. He's like, no, like you just need help. You know, selfish people don't acknowledge and realize that they're selfish <laughs> like that's and and that's i think that's the key difference between he, you know oppenheimer and like robert downey jr's character right like a a truly self-involved selfish person self-important person because another great line is like snap out of it asshole you're not just self-important you're actually important <laughs> right like <laughs> like for the world you know um and, and that's that's a, a great distinction um, but like someone who's so morally concerned with their actions isn't actually as bad as somebody who is truly vicious because they don't care. They're not reflective on that. Like in that way, they're just doing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, and, and, you know, maybe to answer your question, I think, I think, uh, more directly the, you know, the relate, it, it shows how, you know, the post-war gender roles and so on. And, you know, the, ambitious scientists sort of persona and whatnot it, it it cuts you know oppenheimer off from like a his own family it's like this is supposed to be one of the great joys of life right raising your kid your son your uh you know son and heir presumably and um also from and you know relatedly to the person who ends up being his most loyal companion despite himself you know the person who stands up for him even while like his sordid affairs are being like dragged through you know uh, a, a sort of hearing with a lot of you know hostile people listening to every salacious detail she still you know sticks by him out of you know stubbornness loyalty love um you know whatever the reason it's like you know that 
you 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 can't help but think it's like that the these people might have been a lot happier and better for each other if they had had like a more uh reasoned uh, ability to 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 actually uh communicate with each other and a, a social context that wasn't so suffocating for for women and for men to a lesser degree um, that's right yeah yeah i i think too though it, it's there are trade-offs i remember having a student who was talking to me about uh i don't know she was fed some kind of reactionary nonsense about greta thunberg and something about how she's not a good role model because she dropped out of school or something like this and that. And it was clear she was just fed some, some attack propaganda and Greta Thunberg. And I said, well, okay, so maybe you don't want her to be a role model for you in terms of like how you pursue your personal life, but maybe, maybe that's not the point of her, right? Maybe the point of her isn't about, this is how you should order your personal affairs and your, your career trajectory and your education. Like maybe too, that certain people who become important in the world uh, might not be great husbands or might not have the best choices for themselves or the, like there, there aren't necessarily, uh, you know, perfect parallels between uh, personal flourishing and what serves the common good. Even if ultimately we want to cultivate ways of life where those things go together, right? Especially in, in crisis, especially in terms of like the development of the, the bomb before the Nazis get it. Like, yeah. It makes sense, maybe this destroys family life to have to be involved in this, you know. Um, Though that, like, that, that's that's very true. Uh, you know, I think in in general, um, but but you do you do make me think of a, a little a kind of funny irony of the film, I guess, where you you have you know you bring he sets up this town he builds like a wild west sort of like like frontier yeah frontier settlement for all these commie physicists and stuff like literal log cabins and shit um (laughs) out there and it's got a full like full dress welfare state medical services everything you know all the wives come with and they the, the wives are working in important positions you even have a wife who i think knows uh, I don't know if she's a chemist or what her deal is, but she's like involved with the physicists and discussing important things, right? Right. Yeah. You have a little cracking of the gender sort of ice cap and then everybody's having kids. There's a, there's a funny scene where, where the J- J- Matt Damon general, what is, whatever his name is, I forget. It's been a long time. He's complaining about how oh, we're having 10 births a month here in this, in this village. And it's like, ah, oh, this, that looks like really cool, like a nice place to live plainly, you know, a flourishing community community to build the weapon to end the world you know well yeah and that's the thing it's like the thing it's ironic everything what they're coming together for is this terrible thing in a certain way although again for like the goal of defeating the nazis but like what it actually result results is is in order to do the great thing everyone has to contribute whatever they can and it had like it does show that like communist principles of cooperation and 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 uh each according to their need, but don't forget the other part of that. Uh, from each according to their need to, let's see, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? Yeah. The Marxist principle is that like everyone has to contribute whatever they can. And, and that was what was needed there, right? Um, you, you didn't have people being squeezed out, um, and, and taking advantage of the way that markets can, can kind of gouge people. You didn't have, those forces were not ideal for accomplishing the goal, right? So that was interesting. 
there's one la- one last uh, sort of political question that I wanted to to talk about, um, and that's the choice to not show the bombs going off. The bombs hit. Well, it shows the one the t- the test one the test. at Trinity, New Mexico, but not the actual bombing of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Um, and also doesn't show the the dispossession of like the Native Americans from this this territory where they built. Although interestingly, it does have Oppenheimer uh, telling the military that what should happen after is the land should be given back to the indigenous people. And yeah, they kind of laugh at him. Yeah, and they they didn't. It's still there to this day. It's still a big research laboratory. Um, yeah, I that this criticism. I don't know. I. I I mean, I know it was I, it was very intentional, I think, not to show because like it's something that you certainly would think about making this movie. Um, but I, I think the intention is to show, you know, how how like the development of technology can make the questions of how you use it so abstract, you know, where it really doesn't hit viscerally until later, until afterwards. You know, it's like uh, there's this very disturbing scene like the. Or he's giving this speech to like a rah-rah crowd after, you know, it's like it worked, it blew up Hiroshima, and, you know, he's sort of... Very saying, uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I, I only wish we'd gotten it to use against the Germans. And then as he's leaving, he hallucinates like stepping on like a charred corpse, you know, like some that's been like yeah. almost vaporized by the nuclear explosion. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that it, 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 it would have been, I mean, it's certainly not, not, uh, uh, missing from the film, you know, the, the, the idea that this was used, like it, like it hangs over everything and it's taken for granted that the audience is thinking about this and it's, it's shown in that sort of hallucination scene that it's like, oh, this is a horrible atrocity has been committed to show it directly would be. I don't know, almost, uh, you could see it being almost insulting, you know, or like trying to, trying to make it into a sort of, uh, melodramatic, like, like, like right. gut punch that's, by that's showing the mass murder of whatever 70,000 people or, um, and yeah, that's an interesting point. But I think as a film, the, the intention is, 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 is is to show you like what their perspective actually was and the, and their perspective by and large was they didn't know really that much about Japan and didn't give a shit. It r- really didn't enter into the equation until it was too late. You know, that was, it was about the Germans first. And then it was like, well, the, the Japanese haven't surrendered yet. So we're just throwing this thing in. And, uh, it, it just wasn't part of the equation for almost anybody until, yeah, until after it was already finished. And no, that's true. I, I mean, look, I, I think who knows, but I, I think there could have been a version of the film that did show either actual footage of of the bombings in Japan or some visual representation of that in a way that would would work. Yeah, um, I, I, I so but uh, that's not the film that was made. And I think the film that was made succeeds and doesn't do what I think some critics from the left say that it does, which is like. Uh, center the white experience. Okay. Well, you're centering the stories about a white guy, like an American, well, not American, but like, you know, Oppenheimer, his perspective is the film's perspective. And, um, I, you know, I, I see in that powerful scene where he hallucinates and 
not just what you pointed out, but also like the faces in the crowd starts to like melt away as if they were hit by the bomb as well. Right. Like it's like, okay. So people are like, well, look, it's, it's only white faces that you're showing, you know? So are, are you saying that only, you know, people can only resonate with the death of white people or something. And I just, I, I think that's just uh, an ill fitting critique. I don't think it really gets the film. It's, it's a kind of, it's the kind of critique that you would write if you read about the film, but didn't watch it. I don't know. Um, because it is, I think, obviously a powerful film about the devastation, destruction, violence, terror of this power. And, and the whole film is about his wrestling with this and his guilt over it. And the visuals, like you pointed out, I think were very powerful because of how they, um, they capture something that either you show like actual footage of something and then you're still at a remove, right? Like, like there's something to what you're saying. This, this doesn't, <laughs> by analogy, it's almost like the idea that you shouldn't uh, draw an image of God or something like, like the, an image of something is not the thing itself. And, and, and as you say, you could minimize or, uh, you know, reduce the power of, or, or sentimentalize or, or make melodramatic something by trying to portray it because it's so terrible that in the attempt to capture it, you're minimizing it. Like, I think there's something to that. And, that, and that's why you have to go to the artistic renderings. Yeah. It's like, think about like Picasso, right? Like it wasn't realism that captured the, the disasters of modernity in Picasso. It was like, uh, he intentionally had to, to, to take an artistic um, distortion and rendering in order to capture the truly awful. You know what I mean? And like, I, I do think there's something in, in how Nolan dealt with it that was commendable and that worked. I was moved, you know, by his imagery very much. So um, I thought the shimmering, like the, the sh you know, there, there's something that like gave you a sense uh, you, you heard and saw glimpses of this, this thing that you could not imagine and that seeing it visually would not help you imagine actually the, the actual reality of, I don't think. Yeah. As you say, I, I think there would have been, I think I agree that there would have been tasteful ways to do it, but like to just have like a CGI rendering, you know, of, of, of the whole city being leveled, like right. with, with whiz bang special effects, I think that would have been more offensive than Almost anything insulting else. insulting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we should note there have been a number of, of uh, by all accounts, very excellent Japanese films made explicitly about the bombing. And I think maybe that also played into Nolan's thinking where he didn't want to sort of yes, tread on their toes, um, yeah. remake a film that has already been made. So, yeah, it's it's certainly I mean, it's not only during that one scene as uh, during the the uh, administrative hearing. You, there's also bits where, you know, he imagines a bomb going off and like the guy's face being lit up by the nuclear fire. You know, it was like clearly he's like haunted by this all the time thinking about, you know, what what could happen to anybody in any major city at any point. Um and yeah, yeah it's yeah. It, it, it occurs to me at the beginning of the film, there's this these beautiful images of like the universe and, and sunspots and like, and his imagination is obviously like connected to the wonders of the universe in a kind of beautiful, awe inspiring way. And then later on his hallucinations or his imaginings are of like the capacities of that universe in this terrible way. So it's, I don't know. It's, I think it's a, a very well done juxtaposition 
of of those those kinds of images that this this person whose excellence was all consumed with these mysteries of the universe i don't know i think it's a very good way to explore how modernity has uh, abused the mysteries of the universe for yeah. terrible ends yeah oh and one one last comment i for, i forgot to wrap up my my truman thought the reason everyone thinks that Truman made the decision to drop the nuclear bombs is because he went around after the fact and, and saying that he had to justify the decision. You know, it was something that was so horrifying that it needed – you couldn't just say, well, we did it because we could. And we were in like this berserker blood rage and we didn't care about Japanese civilians. It was like, no, we did it because otherwise we would have had to invade and that would have killed like a million GIs, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not that's true, it, it just is not the case that Truman made that order. The th those machinery was already set in motion before he became president at all. And um, his his actual only action was the very human one to say no more of this stuff without my explicit uh, command, which he never gave, which, you know, was it turned out to be irrelevant. But, yeah, it, how how the logic of this and the power politics, I think that's also, you know, you could make a, a, an analogy to Oppenheimer that actually they're quite similar in a way to where he had to distort history and erase his own humanity to, to, to tell a lie about why it was necessary to do this basically at the end of the day, right. probably unnecessary action certainly the second one at least um that's a great point yeah yeah and my, my final thought is uh something that i think you'll appreciate too you know at, at the moral quandaries that that come uh later don't erase the very good motivation of uh people seeking to use science for for a just cause to prevent the Nazis from destroying the world and destroying you know the Jews and um and it's incredible what I mean it wasn't just Oppenheimer whether it's the general whether it's Oppenheimer I mean, people got shit done at an incredible pace with incredible pressure and complicated problems of science of strategy of military and political maneuvering uh, and we've talked in the past about the new deal and like the incredible things that were were built and and just the the unbelievable like decision making on a mass scale to invest money and energy and, and like just have to pull off something where you're not sure if you can do it and the timeline is unclear and it's just like the stakes are as high as it gets and everyone's like yep let's do it let's get the greatest minds and just fucking like pull it together and do it right and there was something I was like man could you imagine and I know there's there's all these tropes about the greatest generation or whatever but like the people in that film, if they looked at, at us today and how we deal with today's problems, I could just imagine <laughs> like what a bunch of like just, you know what I mean? Like I could, I could just, the, the, the dripping contempt for how poorly we respond to crisis in, in a collective way, right? Uh, I think what would be evident is it's, they pulled off phenomenal things um, that required intelligence and collaboration and just, dedication and principle. And, and, and there was something to me that was inspiring about all that because we need that kind of energy and that those, you know, the moral courage and that, that navigating of complex, like political games and like thinking existentially about your role in, in all these moral and political quandaries. There's a lot there to admire if like 
there's a lot of Sophie's choice stuff going on, right? There's not a lot of moral clarity other than like, let's minimize death and let's defeat the bad guys. But like the way from, from interpersonal marital strife to political, to scientific problems, the way that people cared about um, doing whatever they could to involve themselves in the better outcome of those struggles. I think there's a lot there to, to draw inspiration from it's something that's needed today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I guess, you know, in a total war context, like, like total war mobilization, you know, that's, that's surely that sort of can't be replicated uh, to precisely, you know, that's the sort of pressure that, that doesn't, you can't just magic out of the air, but you would, th- you would think that climate change would be that kind of pressure though. Right. I know yeah. that it's an amorphous enemy, but but like the the results of not defeating that problem are the same in a way, right? Yeah, possibly worse. Well, and that and well, I guess that's the thing. It's like uh, you know the Manhattan Project. You're like pushing forward the boundaries of theoretical physics and chemistry in like several directions at the same time, while also doing like one of the most complicated and difficult engineering challenges yes. ever. Uh, that's right. And yeah. and like we don't really need to accomplish that type of project like like if we could just build a high-speed rail uh line in in less than it's like when did they start the one in california in like 2009 and it's like not even halfway done yeah that's you know right the 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 some of that some of that uh uh oppenheimer energy to like fix our our national grid and you know the the amtrak uh and you know, the, the, it can't be that hard. You know, we're looking at shit that Japan's had for 70 years. Uh, like, come on guys, let's, let's get it together. We have gotten it yeah. together in the past and, and, and harder times with less resources. So like, come on. That's right. Yeah. And the, the last thing is that the staffer in the film who is prepping Robert Downey Jr.'s character, the Strauss guy, uh, was phenomenal. And, and yeah. like, there's been a lot of staffers that have been uh, quitting and objecting to what's going on in Congress over Gaza. Um, but that, that's, that staffer was phenomenal because he was prepping, doing his job, but also he kind of gives it to him here and there. And at the end, especially um, about how kind of narcissistic and self-absorbed he is and, and kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, there are young people who don't have a lot of power who are principled, who kind of stand up to these assholes. And uh, that's a real thing too. And that's worth worth celebrating. So yeah, at the end of the day, I thought I was moved by the film, a lot of things to think about, a um, lot to connect with and a lot to, to, to draw from uh, for today. So yeah. Um, Three hour drama where people are mostly sitting in rooms talking like, and it holds your attention and is very stimulating, thought provoking, like shit. What is yeah. What more can you ask for from Hollywood? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Bring it on, baby. We'll take more of that, please. Great. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.